You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Tim Rice. Welcome to episode seven of my podcast, Get On To My Cloud. In previous episodes of Get On To My Cloud, I've chatted about the first two musicals Andrew Lloyd Webber and I wrote together. The likes of us, our 1965 to 66 musical about the life and times of Dr. Bernardo, which never really got anywhere so far, and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which we wrote in 1968 for one particular school concert, and to our surprise, eventually became a truly successful show at all levels, from the West End and Broadway to countless schools and amateur productions. Now I'd like to ramble on a bit about how our third effort got going, Jesus Christ Superstar. At the time of the recording of this podcast, Superstar is almost exactly 50 years old. He began life as a record album, or LP, long player, as it was known in those days. Superstar made its first appearance as a complete work as a double album, four sides of vinyl, as the piece was 87 minutes long and it was impossible to get more than about 23 minutes onto one side of a record without losing a great deal of sound quality. CDs, thank goodness, were more than a decade away. Joseph hadn't changed our lifestyles, or indeed made us any money at all, but did win us a recording deal with Decca. So by early 1969, we had a decent and officially released 30-minute recording of the show, giving us at last a sample of our work with which to impress, or not, potential backers, managers, theatre producers and the like. And one management team were impressed. New Ventures, a company set up by property man Sefton Myers and David Land. Sefton was a highly successful property developer, and incidentally the father of the wonderful singer-songwriter Judy Tsuk, who was only 13 in 1969. And David was a long-standing showbiz agent and booker, who represented, among others, the Dagenham Girl Pipers and the UK tours of the Harlem Globetrotters, neither act exactly in our neck of the woods. Andrew had written to Sefton Myers, without telling me, offering not Joseph or a new songwriting team of stunning potential, but a slightly crackpot idea we'd had at times discussed about a museum of pop memorabilia. Presumably Andrew would have assembled Hank Marvin's first guitar, Cliff's underpants and the wreckage of Eddie Cochran's car in an emporium purchased by Sefton. Although there have been several museum exhibitions of rock heroes in recent times, in 1969 it seemed a bonkers idea. And not surprisingly, New Ventures kicked that one pretty quickly into touch. However, Andrew had enclosed a Joseph album with this suggestion, and Sefton and David came back pretty pronto to us with a request to meet. And at the meeting, they offered us a deal. It took quite a while for the deal to get agreed, thanks largely to my caution. I was PA to the distinguished recording manager Norrie Paramore at the time, and I was feebly nervous about leaving a steady job at the ripe old age of 24. Andrew had no such qualms as 
A, he didn't have a job, and B, he had a burning conviction that he was the next Richard Rogers. I had no strong belief that I had anything other than a lightweight ability to amuse. My dithering ironically led to the new venture's offer becoming more and more generous and tempting. Coupled with the ever-increasing solicitor's bills we were running up during the negotiations, we soon got to the position where I couldn't afford not to take the deal, as otherwise I'd have no cash with which to pay our lawyer. To cut a long story short, and the tale of our eventual signing with David and Sefton was a long story, the deal meant that by summer 1969, we were in the position of being able to write and do whatever we wanted to all day, without the distraction of other commitments and without financial worries. However, the downside was we had to find something to do. Our first effort under the new Ventures banner was a follow-up to Joseph, an oratorio intended for schools based on the story of King Richard the Lionheart and the minstrel who allegedly saved him from rotting in an Austrian prison, Blondel. It was my idea, nothing like as good a one as Joseph, and was restricted to one school performance. The only recording that was made of a song from this epic was entitled Come Back Richard, Your Country Needs You, and it was soon pretty clear that the country didn't. You can't leave a good thing behind you forever I think that it's time that you got it together And Richard, I tell you, Richard When you return, I'm afraid you'll discover That love won't go on when you're miles from your lover Oh Richard, please listen, Richard Come back, Richard, your country needs you We must know where you are Come back, Richard, your country needs you We think you've gone that's probably enough. That, believe it or not, was released as a single in 1969 by Tim Rice and the Weber Group. Its speedy demise must have made David Land and Sefton Myers rather nervous about their investment. Clearly, we were on the wrong track. And anyway, we should be writing for the theatre rather than for schools. And if possible, try something heavier, more serious. The chain of events that led to Superstar began when I went to visit my old pal music maestro Mike Leander who in the summer of 1969 was head honcho of A&R at MCA Records, for whom he'd just recorded a version of Any Dream Will Do with Joe Brown. I'd met Mike in 1965, when I was part of a scheme he'd had to form a permanent group of backing vocalists for his recordings, a scheme that didn't quite work. After Mike had played me Joe's record, which I thought was pretty good, but for some reason was never actually released, Mike asked me what had happened with my idea for a musical about Jesus and Judas Iscariot. What idea was my first reaction? I hadn't discussed Jesus with Andrew, but of course this indeed was something I had on occasion thought about over the years. Clearly, I'd once mentioned it to Mike, and it had stuck. The schools I'd attended, notably Lansing College, had always put considerable emphasis on religious instruction, chapel, and divinity. From a very young age, when I considered the story of Jesus, I wondered what I might have done in the situations in which Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot found themselves. How were they to know Jesus would be accorded divine status by millions, and that they, as a result, would be condemned down the ages? 
Surely Judas was acting quite reasonably in seeing his contemporary and leader as nothing more than a man. Surely certain political considerations should be balanced against speculative spiritual ones. Not wildly original thoughts, but they had not, to my knowledge, been put over in any recent popular art form, with or without music. I'd kidded myself for years that one day I would write a book or a play about the death of Jesus from Judas's point of view. Now that I was involved in musical theatre, working with a highly talented composer, I actually had a plausible outlet for this idea. Andrew was immediately intrigued by the Jesus idea. I explained it should be the story of Christ's last week on earth, as seen through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. Because the apostle who betrayed Jesus has been given extraordinarily scant attention in the Gospels, bearing in mind his crucial role in the founding of Christianity, we would be able to put words into his mouth without fear of being scripturally inaccurate. In other respects, I was determined to be as faithful as possible to the story as per Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We had no wish to offend or to be controversial, although we were well aware that we were entering sensitive territory. John Lennon's assertion that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, made three years earlier, though taken out of context, had led, primarily in America, to death threats and a public burning of Beatles records. In the unlikely event of our work reaching America, or indeed anywhere beyond South Kensington, we had no wish to incur the wrath of fanatics. David Land was fairly horrified at first by our new wheeze. I'm a good Jewish boy, anything but that. But, to his eternal credit, he told us it was not his job to make the artistic decisions, even though ours, with Come Back Richard, Your Country Needs You, had not to date been brilliant. Perhaps he thought the Jesus idea would all blow over in a few weeks and we'd write something more commercial. But after he heard Judas's first song, he and Sefton were totally won over. Remember, we wanted to write a theatrical musical, and assumed that any recording would be a spin-off of a stage production. Events now proceeded to force us to reverse this process. The stage shows of Superstar became the spin-offs of the record. Judas has two numbers in the completed work, in which he questions Jesus, his work, and his legacy. There's the song Superstar itself, the first song in the show that we wrote. He sings that from a 20th century perspective, looking back on 2,000 years of Christianity. He also sings Heaven on Their Minds, in which Judas, in his own time, questions and warns Jesus about the way he and his followers are leading his people, as he sees it, to catastrophe. Here is Heaven on Their Minds, the opening song of the piece, sung by Murray Head, a sensationally strong vocal performance, musically supported by the exquisite Grease Band on loan from Joe Cocker. is clearer now At last all too well I can see where we all soon will be If you strip away the myth from the man you will see where we all soon will be Done. 
the new Messiah And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong I remember when this whole thing began No talk of God, then we called you a man And believe me, my admiration for you hasn't died Around some other way, and they'll hurt you if they think you've lied. Nazareth, your famous son, should have stayed a great unknown, like his father carving wood. He'd have made good tables, chairs, and oaken chest would have suited Jesus best. He'd have caused nobody harm, no one alive. Listen, Jesus, do you care for your race? Don't you see we must keep in our place? We are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? I am frightened by the crowd, for we are getting much too loud. And they'll crush us if we go too far. Heaven on their minds It was beautiful But now it's sour Yes, it's all God's rather miffed when JC Superstar never gets mentioned in the list of great 70s rock albums, but this track illustrates, as does the entire original album, that this recording is beyond doubt rock played at its very best. We owe a great deal to the Grease Band. Bruce Rowland's drums, Alan Spenner bass, Henry McCulloch and Neil Hubbard guitars, augmented by Chris Mercer on sax and Peter Robinson keyboards. Not to mention the lineup of vocalists, Murray Head, Ian Gillen, Yvonne Elliman, Barry Denon and Mike Darbo to the fore. Now, just to recap, our aim had been to use what we hoped would be a successful single on the charts to get the go-ahead to record the entire show, which hadn't yet been written, which in turn would lead to a West End theatre producer putting on the show. The single would test the waters and let us know if there was any mileage in such a weird idea for a musical. There seemed little point in writing the entire show if reaction to the first song was universally hostile. But we did have a lot of ideas, structure and tunes in place for when we felt it was safe to proceed. We felt we should try to make the first song radio and record friendly rather than musical theatre friendly. 
Not surprisingly, Mike Leander and the boss of MCA Records, Brown Brolly, were more than happy to finance and release a recording of the single of Superstar. It was not a cheap recording. Grease Band, Huge Orchestra, Murray Head, two separate vocal backing outfits. But MCA coughed up enthusiastically, and Mike and Brian were genuinely ecstatically happy with the results. MCA gave it priority promotion in the UK, and it was also released internationally, including, of course, in the United States, by far the most important record market. The sales in England for the record were disappointing, but internationally, Murray's single did much better, selling sufficiently worldwide for MCA, and it included good figures in the States, to give us the go-ahead to record the entire album. We now had to make serious inroads into writing the rest of the show, which at this point was still called Jesus Christ, as it was billed on the label of the original single of the song Superstar. David Land still reported no interest from the theatrical establishment, so we began to revise our style and format of creation to suit a record album rather than the stage. This proved to be a brilliant move, and like most brilliant moves, it was forced upon its perpetrators rather than cunningly planned. I simply haven't time on this podcast to tell more than a fraction of the tales around the subsequent history of Jesus Christ Superstar in the past half century. But I hope there'll be other podcasts when I can regale you with a few other insights and backroom tales about what by any standards has proved quite a popular work. But I'd like to finish this chat with perhaps the most theatrical number in Superstar, The Ballad for Mary Magdalene, originally sung, and never better, by the then-unknown Yvonne Elliman, whom Andrew discovered singing in the Pheasantry nightclub in Chelsea. We're thrilled by the fact that this song has been covered by many distinguished singers over the years. Peggy Lee, Elaine Page, Judy Collins, Nancy Sinatra, Petula Clark, Helen Reddy, Agneta Folskog, Madeline Bell, and many, many more. Even blokes have had a go, including one of my favourite singers, Bobby Darin. But here is the version that launched the song. Yvonne Elliman, from the 1970 album of Jesus Christ Superstar, singing... I don't know how to love him. I don't know how to love him. What to do? How to move him? I've been changed. Yes, really changed. In these past few days, when I've seen myself, I see. Someone else. 
Get Onto My Cloud, Part 7. Written and presented by Tim Rice and produced by Peter Hobbs. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.